0: Come on, sorry. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 29. 1 Corinthians 15, 29. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? Why are we also in danger every hour? I protest, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought, and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. And we'll pray again, Lord, just thank you so much for what you've given us in your word, this treasure, God, that we have. We want to handle it rightly, and we want to stand firm, God, on this foundation that you've given us. I pray that we would have our hearts drawn to you, and that we would yield to you, that we believe in you, God, and all that you've said, and that you would be magnified, God, within each of us. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Well, before I start, I want to ask Larry and Yvonne if they would come up. This is their last Sunday with us. They've had enough, and so they're leaving. <laughs> Moving almost 6,000 miles away to Italy, according to Siri anyway. I asked Siri, how far is it from San Antonio to Rome? And they're not going to be in Rome, but it's Florence. 6,600? 5,600. 6, 5,600 5, miles. So... It'll take you a while to walk there. Anyway, we just so much appreciate Larry and Yvonne. They've been a part of the church now 18 years, is that right? Hmm? 18 plus years. We've watched their kids grow up here with us, and they've been involved in so many things here at the church and in the community. And we've, few times, have been saying goodbye to them over the last few weeks in different contexts and and, um, and it's just been a great blessing to just think on all the different ways that God has used them and how he's blessed our lives. And so we wanted just to, to express our appreciation for them and to pray for them. So let me pray for you guys. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for, for Lara and Yvonne, for the girls, and just the, the tremendous blessing that their family has been, is to us. And, and, and Lord, we look forward to when we can be back together again. We ask God that you would just um, go before them and, and that they would just know, Lord, that you have done that. That they would walk in your rest and your peace, Lord, with this new adventure that you've given them. That their hearts would be filled with hope and joy as they trust you for this. We pray that you'd lead them to a good body of believers that they can be a part of and that their faith would continue to be nurtured. And God, we um, trust you just to fill the Holes, Lord, that will be left in so many places with their absence. But we thank you for them. We love them, God, and we entrust them to you. And we look forward, God, to just hearing more of what you'll be doing through their lives. In Christ's name, amen. Thank yep. you. Yep. yep. Love you guys. Well, back to the text, 1 Corinthians 15. This entire chapter, as you've been hearing for the last um, couple Sundays, is about the resurrection. As I've been thinking about the resurrection, it's the way my mind works. It occurred to me that your view of what happens after death is a lot like going to the dentist. And so we have a couple of dentists here. I'm sorry for what I'm about to say, but um, maybe you've had only good experiences with going to the dentist, and, you know, I. Um, You'd be unique. Um, but um, <laughs> Believe it or not, um, even though I have a very small mouth, I know I do put my foot in it often, and so my whole foot fits in my mouth. But I have a small mouth, and I don't look forward typically to going to the dentist, even though I like my dentist a lot. I've known him all of his life, and um, and I always look forward to seeing him. But And usually all I have to do is just get my x-rays done. You know, like once a year, how often they do it. It feels like... You know, every time I'm there, but but and that's not bad. But I have a small mouth, and so thankfully over the years X-rays have gotten smaller, and it's not as big a deal as it used to be. But even still, I I my my eyes water, my gag reflex kicks in, and and the and the and you know and the um, hygienist is feeling so awful that the torture she's putting me through, and I always hear these words: "Hang on, we're almost done." Well, if you believe in the resurrection, that's how you live your life. Hang on, we're almost done, right? But if you don't believe in the resurrection, what would it be like if after all that torture you've been through, and the dentist comes back and says, you know, none of that work we did worked. So let's just do it again. Well, you believe in reincarnation. Let's just do it all over again because it didn't work the first time. Or maybe the dentist comes and says, um, you know, let's just forget the x-rays. None of them turned out. Let me just drill holes in all of your teeth and let's just fill them all just to be safe. Well, that's like purgatory. <laughs> you lived your life and it wasn't good enough. You didn't take care of all your sins, so you're just going to go to purgatory and, get all your, and just be punished for the rest of a long time until maybe other people pray for you and get you out. And um, and it'll just take care of all that didn't get taken care of the first time. But if you believe in annihilation, well, then don't even go to the dentist. What difference does it make, right? This is the best you're ever going to have it. And those are really the views. Resurrection, reincarnation, purgatory, kind of in there somewhere, and annihilation. And we would affirm Resurrection. If Jesus Christ was risen from the dead, we will be as well. And that's what Paul established already in this chapter. Now, in verse 29, he he gets into the practical ramifications of believing in the resurrection. And one, he throws in this kind of problematic thing here about getting baptized for the dead. He says, Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead if the dead are not raised at all? Why then? Are they baptized for them? Now, what in the world are you talking about? Because there is nothing in the Bible that talks about getting baptized for the dead. It is not a Christian doctrine. And the reason that, for that is, number one, water baptism doesn't save anybody. Scripture is very clear on that. It's an important ordinance, but it does not save. It's a testimony to you having been saved. We also know from the Bible that death is final. There is nothing that anyone can do to change the eternal state of a person after that person has died. And there's nothing we can do to affect somebody else's salvation, especially after they have already passed away. And so why would you even get baptized for the dead? You can't do anything to impact somebody else's eternal state. Nothing. So what is Paul talking about? I think probably the best explanation is is that there were people among the Corinthians who were practicing this. They, they were baptizing themselves on behalf of someone else who has died, as though that act could somehow do something for somebody else. Which, by the way, is a lot like the doctrine of purgatory. Because the Catholic doctrine is, is that when you die, you haven't finished taking care of all of your sins, so you have to go to this place of torment to have to, where you will have your sins purged from you through the Heat of fire, And if other people back on earth are praying for you, lighting candles for you, paying money to the Catholic Church so that the priest will pray for you, then you can get out of purgatory sooner than later. And so that fits with, that idea fits with maybe what is going on here in Corinth, and it's just, it's outlandish. So Paul is not affirming the doctrine of being baptized for the dead he was not, he would no way he would do that but he might be simply saying you same people that are denying that you will be raised from the dead are doing this crazy thing of getting baptized for people who have already died that's a total contradiction why are you believing there is no resurrection but you are doing something on behalf of those who have already died it's a contradiction it's like Why would a person say, I do not believe there is any power outside of myself? Why would that same person wake up every morning and read the horoscope? And so he's not saying the horoscope should be read, but it makes no sense to read your horoscope if you don't believe that there's a power outside of yourself. And Paul's not affirming that you should get baptized for people who have died. But it makes no sense to do something like that if at the same time you're denying that there's even a resurrection. So that may be what he's saying. Second possibility is that Paul is saying that that the belief here is that people died, people die for their faith in Christ. And that was happening at this time. And the church continues to evangelize and baptize new converts. So then the question would be, why do you continue to fill the church with baptized converts who replace those who have died if you really don't believe that there is any hope beyond the grave? And so it's one of those two things probably Paul has in mind here. But don't for a minute think that Paul is saying that we should baptize one another on behalf of those who have died. Totally pagan thought. It is not, has, has no support whatsoever in Scripture appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment. There is nothing we're going to do to impact on this life the life of somebody who has already died. And then he says in verse 30, not only is it stupid to baptize for the dead, if you don't even believe in the resurrection, it's dumb anyway, but especially if it's contradiction if you don't believe in the resurrection. But secondly, verse 30, why are we also in danger every hour? Again, if there's no resurrection, then why do we go through hard times in life willingly? So then he gives an example from his own life. I protest, brethren, by the boasting in you which I, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die daily. Now, most of the time when we read this verse, we we spiritualize it and say the Christian is supposed to die to himself all the time. And that's true. Every day is a day of dying to ourselves and living unto Jesus. Every day is a day of reckoning ourselves dead and alive in Christ. That's Romans 6. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's giving... Because now in the next verse he says, If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus. Who knew that? And there's no other mention of this in the New Testament. But apparently Paul may have been fed to the lions. Or some other wild beast. And he lived to talk about it. I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus. He says, why would I do that? If the dead are not raised, then we might as well just eat and drink. For tomorrow, we die. Why make life hard on yourself? If there is no resurrection, if it's just annihilation, this is the best you're ever going to have. So live it up. But if there is a resurrection... And that's why Paul says, I'm willing to risk my life for the name of Jesus day after day, every day. Because I know this life is not all that there is. And then he comes with this conclusion. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. I remember taking a trip to Israel and Greece and Egypt over 40 years ago now. And we all had a roommate, and my roommate was a friend of mine. We were the same age, and we packed an enormous amount of stuff. Those were back in the days when there were no weight limits to a suitcase, and so whatever you could get in the suitcase, they would take it. And we had these massive suitcases, and, and we probably had 75 pounds worth of stuff, at least, in, in our suitcases. And I'm not a neat freak, but, you know, look at my office, you know I'm not a neat freak, but I do like everything in its place, and I like, and, you know, and I, I don't like being a slob. Well, my roommate, who I thought was like me, was a slob, and I had a room with this guy for over two weeks, almost three weeks on this trip, and and it got to where right at the beginning of the trip, he he we would walk into a motel room and he would unzip his suitcase all the way around and grab it by the handles and just shake it into the room. <laughs> I kid you not, he's got 75 pounds worth of clothes now that he has just shook his whole suitcase and the room is just scattered with his stuff. We just walked through the door. So mad. You know, and I can't get another roommate. And I thought, you know, what am I going to do? I have to live with this guy for almost three weeks. I was so mad. And I thought, you know, I can either fight him the whole time or I can just give in. And so I stopped saying anything and I didn't I wasn't shaking my suitcase out like that but I just lived with it. And I and I and I just and my standards went way down. Bad company it corrupts good morals. There's no way around it. I mean how many times I mean it happens there might be the rare occasion when the bad company becomes good company. But it's not usually that way. It's usually the bad company impacts the one that's being lived with, the one that's being associated with, and it influences the other person and drags them down. It's almost always this way. Solomon is probably the classic example in Scripture of a man whose company ruined him. Bad company. And specifically, it was the foreign women that he married. 700 wives and 300 concubines, and almost all of them were idolaters. And Solomon even conceded to their idolatry by allowing each of them to build pagan shrines to the gods that they worshipped. And the scripture says that he allowed Jerusalem and the surrounding area to be filled with those idols. It took over 300 years for those idols to be removed. The wisest man who ever lived... And yet his heart was turned away from God because of the company that he kept. Oswald Chambers says, no person ever falls in the area of his strength. I'm sorry, in the area of his weakness. He always falls in the area of his strength. In our areas of weakness, we know that we need Jesus and we're on our guard. In the areas of our strength, we think we're doing okay. Solomon's area of strength was his wisdom. And I wonder if he didn't think he was too wise to be deceived. And he's already been deceived. If you think you're too wise to be deceived, you are already deceived. There is no one who is too wise to not to be deceived. Bad company has the potential of corrupting everyone. And specifically in this context, the bad company are Christians who live as though there is no resurrection. Any Christians live like that? A lot of Christians live every single day with no thought to eternity, with no thought to standing before Jesus at the judgment seat of Christ, as 2 Corinthians chapter 5 speaks about. No thought. I consider it very sobering when students come to me and ask me about their life decisions, what should they do next? It's very easy just to look at all the criteria that they, are, that they have to analyze and weigh it and say this is the best decision. And never counsel them. Put eternity First. In the decisions that you make, you need to be thinking of what is to come after this life. Make decisions based upon eternity. There are a lot of Christians that will not even consider eternity and will not counsel others to take eternity into consideration. That is bad counsel. It is bad company. There is much more to this life than this life. Do we really believe that? Every day as we make decisions, it is not about advancement. It's not about money. It's not about career. It is about Christ and eternity. That's why we are here. And every decision needs to be filtered through Christ and eternity. Otherwise, it's bad counsel, it's bad company, and it will corrupt. Become sober-minded. This life is not all there is. Stop sinning, for you have no knowledge of God, acting as though there is no resurrection. I speak this to your shame. So, very simply, Paul is saying in this first paragraph the lessons here, five of them beware of bad company, it corrupts good morals the bad company, Christians who deny, who live as though there is no resurrection. Be sober-minded as opposed to self-indulgent. Stop sinning. Paul would not say that if it were not possible. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. We are no longer in Adam. We are in Christ. We have been crucified with him. We have been raised with him. That this body of sin might be done away with, as Romans 6 says. We are no longer under the power and dominion of sin. We have died to sin. Therefore, Paul can say, Stop sinning. There's no excuse for it as a Christian. Be willing and be prepared to suffer, to die daily. And understand that glory is for the future and not for today. And that's really where he's going to go with the rest of this chapter. This time is not the time of our glory. But the future is when we will step into glory, not now. So in this next paragraph, Paul wants to give just some basic examples, proofs for the resurrection from, from agriculture, from nature around us. And he says, but some will say, how are the dead raised? How does that happen? And what kind of body do they come? How many times have you heard people ask that question? Okay, somebody dies at sea. And so they have to so-called bury them at sea. So they, they, they just slide them off into the ocean. And then the sharks eat them. Okay, now, how is that person's body raised from the dead? I don't know. <laughs> Somebody, you just bury them, okay? And they're not in a watertight, you know, um, casket. You just bury them, and the worms eat them. And now they're in millions of worms. How is that person raised from the dead? I don't know. And so, you, and so, it's like, come on, think about this. How in the world? Can a person be raised from the dead when all of their body tissue, all, of their, all the atoms that made up that person, they've been dispersed into other organisms? There's no way they can be raised from the dead. Okay? With what kind of body do they come? If the sharks ate them, were well, they going to be part shark when they come back? <laughs> I mean, these are the, this is where, where these questions are coming from. Try and figure it out. Try to explain it to somebody. And Paul just goes, you fool. (laughs) Stupid questions. So I told the student, we had a guest speaker one time who, somebody in the class, I'm glad I wasn't there. I would have been really upset. Somebody asked a question and the guest speaker said, that is a stupid question. And only a stupid person could ask a stupid question like that. Not a good way to respond, especially in a Bible school. But Paul's not far from that. You fool! This is the same word for fool that the Greek translation of the Old Testament uses when it says in Proverbs, the, one, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Same word for fool. And isn't it interesting there in verse 35, someone will say, how are the dead? Not how does God raise the dead, but just how does this happen? Well, if God can create this world out of nothing, then certainly God can, it, can reconstruct the body. Even if that's what it is. And we don't know that it's a reconstructed body. We just know there's continuity between the body that dies and the body that is raised from the dead. But we don't even know, I mean, because continuity may not, is is the right way, reconstruction may not be the best way to handle it. Because it's, it's, that might not be what's most accurate. But I'm okay, I can live with reconstruction. Because God could do that. He's God. It's not a problem for him. You fool. Don't you recognize the power of God? Death is nothing to God. He has conquered death. He can certainly raise the body, however he does that. So then he gives some examples from agriculture. That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. We know that's true. The seed that you put in the ground dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body, which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. So there is continuity, but there's not an exact parallel. So, you put a seed in the ground and you're not hoping that seeds are going to come out of the ground. But you put a seed in the ground and plants come out of the ground, not seeds. And he says there's a, there's a parallel here. What goes into the ground, your physical body, is what comes from that physical body after death. There's continuity, but it's not exactly the same, there's great difference. That which you sow, you do not sow. The body which is to be but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished. God does this. And to each of the seeds a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh. Obviously, there is one flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another flesh of birds, another of of fish. Different kinds of bodies. Each has their own. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies and various kinds of glory for those heavenly bodies. The glory of the heavenly is one. The glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So different kinds of bodies, different kinds of glories. We don't understand it all, but we know that God is adequate for these things. He has done this, and all of it reflects on the resurrection so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body, it is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So these are the Contrast here, the comparisons in contrast. It is now perishable, it will be imperishable. It is now a body of dishonor, it will be a body of glory. It is now a body of weakness, it will be a body of power. It is now a natural body, it will be a spiritual body. And these things we see in the body that Christ had raised from the dead, his glorified body. But for now, until we have our glorified body, this body, contrary to what some people would, would want to think, this body is perishable. It is a dishonorable body. Well, what does he mean by that? Well, have you ever been around a corpse of any kind? We live here in the hill country. Who wants to stop and look at the dead deer? I mean, we, we stop and look at the living deer, right? But that corpse that the buzzards are eating on the side of the road, oh, kids, let's stop and look at that. No, you just keep driving. Because it is is a body of dishonor, but it's going to be raised in glory. It's a body of weakness, but it will be a body of power. It's now a natural body. It's not going to stay that way. When Christ was raised from the dead, he was raised to never die again. He's not going to get older. We won't be getting older in heaven. Yay. (laughs) I don't know what age will be, what age this resurrected glorified body will be. I don't know. But I know it won't get older because it'll be an imperishable body. It'll never get sick. That'll be nice. It'll be a glorified body. You wake up in the morning and you won't have to put any makeup on. And the women say, yeah, I mean, you look as good when you wake up in the morning as you do it at the end of the day. Glorified body. You always look good. And so you can, if you were married, you could ask your husband, how do I look? And he's always going to tell you the truth. (laughs) You look great. You couldn't look any better. And it's absolutely the truth. It's a weak body right now. And it gets weaker and weaker. But his body was raised in power. Powerful body. Natural body, spiritual body. C.S. Lewis talks about these things, and, and uh, I think it's in his book, The Great Divorce. And he, and he says how this world is, is really, it's, it's so real to us, it's the only reality we have. But in comparison to the next world, this world is like a fog. And he says, in the next world, the new heaven and new earth, the grass will be greener, all the colors will be more vivid, everything will be more real. Well, how can you have real and more real? Well, it's like the difference between a fog and a wall, right? Fogs are real and walls are real. But the wall's more real than the fog is. And Jesus' resurrected body could walk through walls. Why? Because his body was more real than the wall. We can walk through fogs. We can't walk through walls. Don't try. (laughs) But if Jesus resurrected glorified body, he could walk through a wall like it was a fog because he was more real than the wall was, as C.S. Lewis puts it, spiritual body. That's going to be wonderful. Never get old, never get weak, never get sick. Just a glorified body. And we're looking forward to that because we believe in the resurrection. Don't believe in the resurrection, you've got no hope. Spend all your money on this body. And if you're into cryogenics like our neighbors, apparently over there in comfort, um, give them all your money when you're dead and they'll maybe bring you back to life sometime. Why in the world would anybody want to do that? I'm telling you. So you die, I don't understand it. You die at 80 years old, somebody puts you in liquid nitrogen and then they figure out a way to bring you back to life, you're still 80? I mean, seriously. This is why I came back to life. I left them all my money so I'd come back as an 80-year-old? Come on. Is that hope? It's not going to be that way for us, or for anyone, for that matter. Those that place their faith in Christ will be given a glorified body that is suitable for heaven and for the eternal state of life on earth. Those who die without Christ are also going to be raised from the dead and they also are going to be given a body. Less is said about their body. But it will also be a body that will live for eternity and suffer for eternity. But everyone will be raised, either to life or to death. So then he says... Verse 45, so also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. So Adam gave us soulish life. He could not give us spiritual life. Jesus came that we might have spiritual life, something that Adam could not do. Adam basically took away our spiritual life. He did take it away. By sinning, brought about a separation, spiritual death between man and God. And Jesus came to restore us, to give us spiritual life. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first. Again, the natural world tells us this. But the natural, then the spiritual. Remember Russell Kelfer at Wayside Chapel in San Antonio, he used to have a teaching series on, on he called it, Making the Spiritual Switch. Excellent series. And, he, and his premise was that everything in this natural world Everything that God has made is meant to point us to the eternal. Everything, and that's what Paul's doing here. Look at the natural world; it's meant to teach you about the spiritual world, about the eternal. And he says this is a wonderful way to just figure out what life is about in this created order and why God has made it. He says everything has as its first purpose to teach us about God. In other words, its first purpose is to glorify God. So why why are there clouds? There's something about clouds that teaches us about God and His glory. Why is there land? Why is there water? All of these things are meant, first of all, not to meet our needs, but to reveal God. It is all for God's glory to make a revelation of Him. And that's how Paul's handling this issue of resurrection. He says, look at agriculture. You plant a seed and you get some other kind of plant out of the ground. Still, there's a continuity but it's not exactly the same. And you can't have the spiritual before you first have the natural. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. And is, as is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. As is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. And just as we have, been, have borne the image of the earthy, guess what? We're also going to bear the image of the heavenly. Again, tremendous hope. And now, you didn't think I'd get this far, but Anna had such a short time this morning. Gave me more time. Thank you, Anna. And um, so I just want to just touch on this, uh, go through this last paragraph quickly. Now, I say this, brother, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. It's a different dimension. It's a different realm. It, I'm no physicist. You'd have to talk to Jim Powell about um, physics. But I've been told that, that if there is even one other dimension, and we are three-dimensional creatures, we, can have no, we have no capacity to see, perceive, to understand in any way that fourth dimension. And physicists say that mathematically there's a potential for many dimensions. Where's Jim? How many is it? Infinite, mathematically. Infinite number of dimensions that we could potentially have. If there's simply one more, you can't comprehend it. So it's been described to me, illustrated to me, if you, just, like, if you were to say this piece of paper is only two dimensions. It's not, it's three. But let's just say it's, it's length and width and has no depth. Well, depth would be a third dimension. But if this paper had consciousness, the only thing it could be conscious of is length and width. Even though depth exists, it doesn't know depth and it can't be conscious of it. And so you could have a third dimensional creature right on top of it, in the midst of it, couldn't comprehend it because it can only comprehend the two dimensions that it exists in. We, are th- we exist in three dimensions. Eternity is a fourth dimension. So we can have angels right here in the room, and I believe we do, and we can't see them. If we were to go to heaven, we could not see anything because we do not have the ability to comprehend, to to conceive of that. We have to change. We have to put on the spiritual in order to be able to even live in a spiritual state. And so this is what Paul's after here. He says, it it has to change. We cannot, as we are, flesh and blood, inherit eternity, inherit the spiritual. Something has to change for that to happen, or we just have no comprehension of it. So he says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery, and this is a wonderful mystery. We shall not all sleep. In other words, die. But we're all going to be changed. Some people are going to not die. He's talking about the rapture. And so our Bible school students are kind of getting this drilled into them lately. But we've been talking some about eschatology, end time events. And it is very clear from Scripture that a rapture of the body of Christ is going to take place at some point. And it is very clear that Paul believed that could happen in his lifetime. Which means there is no prophecy that needs to be fulfilled for the rapture to take place. It can happen at any moment. Wouldn't that be wonderful? We just go to be with the Lord. And how fast will that happen? In the twinkling of an eye. That is faster than thought. And so you won't even be able to think, whoa, what's going on? Because you'll be there before you even have the thought, and you go, "What just happened?" Because twinkling of an eye is faster than the blink of an eye. It is the time that it takes light to reflect off your eyeball. The speed of light. It'll be over. You won't even be able to put your arms up and go, "Wee!" It'll just be, it'll just be over, and we'll be in heaven. Man, I get too much reaction sometimes. Now, for Jesus to return to the earth physically and establish his kingdom, different matter. Lots of prophecies that have to be fulfilled before that can happen. But those are two different things. The rapture of the church is something that happens instantaneously for the church, and no prophecy has to be fulfilled. It can happen at any time. And so that's why Paul says some will not die. Everybody else is going to die but all of us are going to be changed. That'll be wonderful. He says that the rapture will take place at the last trumpet. Now, Revelation speaks of trumpets. Remember, there are seven seals and seven trumpets and seven bowls. And so some people would say, well, the seals take place in the middle to the second half of the middle of the tribulation. So this is where the mid-trib view of the rapture takes place. Because it says last trumpet. There are seven trumpets. The trumpets take place in the middle of the tribulation. So this must be the mid-trib rapture. You'll go through half of the tribulation and then you'll be taken out. The problem with that view, and there's a number, but the simplest, most direct problem, immediate problem is Paul didn't know about the seven trumpets. And, and so he's not making reference to seven trumpets. Revelation hadn't been written yet. And so he can't be making reference to that. It's just last trumpet for you. It's, it's the last call, because we, we, it's the calling of God simply to himself. And again, if it, it can only take place after the seven trumpets, then there are many prophecies that had to be fulfilled before the rapture could take place. And Paul's words here that it could happen at any time, especially over in 1 Thessalonians 4 where he speaks the same thing, doesn't make any sense. Because then why is Paul expecting it to happen at any time if all these other prophecies had to be fulfilled? Doesn't make sense. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable have put on the imperishable, and this mortal shall have put on the immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Amen. Now we say that when we stand at a graveside. This is one of those passages, scriptures, that, I, that I've often read at a graveside service at the end of a funeral. Death is swallowed up in victory. But we're saying it from this side. And it's a faith statement, isn't it? But once when we're on the other side, it's a fact statement. <laughs> we're looking around and going, wow. Man, death is swallowed up in victory. Last breath here is our first breath in eternity. Death is swallowed up in victory. Why would you not want to believe in the resurrection? Well, I can tell you why. Because if there's a resurrection, you can't do whatever you want. At least you shouldn't be doing whatever you want. But there's hope with resurrection. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And we'll all be standing around doing that. No matter how hard life was, even how hard the death process was. And it can be very hard. We've each heard stories of believers who have have been martyred and the the different torments they had to go through before they finally gave up this life and entered into the next. Horrible things. Unbelievably evil things that they've had to endure before finally stepping into the presence of God. And yet every one of those people are going to be standing around going, death, where's your victory? Death, where's your sting? Because we're with God in glory. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. And we're not subject to any of those things. We're not subject to death, we're not subject to sin, we're not subject to law, because we've already been crucified with Christ, raised with him, and one day this body will be raised as well but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, the victory over sin, death, and the law. Therefore, my beloved brethren, and this is his final application, because there is a resurrection, my beloved brethren who are in Saudi Arabia struggling for their, suffering for their faith, my brethren who are in China, having their churches torn down and pastors thrown into prison. Whatever your circumstances are, how difficult they might be, be steadfast. There's a resurrection. Just a little longer. Be steadfast. You can be immovable. You can always be abounding in the work of the Lord. And you can know that your toil is not in vain. Because this is not all there is. There is a glorious life to come. So in this last paragraph, Paul's saying, we won't all die. Some will be raptured. And that rapture will happen at the last trumpet. We will be transformed from the perishable to the imperishable. Death will lose its victory and sting. Sin, death, and law... Work together, but we have victory over these things through Christ. Therefore, because Christ has conquered sin and death, and because there is a future resurrection, we are to be and can be steadfast, immovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord, because we know that our work in the Lord is not in vain. You know, this subject is just so basic. You just think, why would Paul have to spend 58 verses? telling Christians there's a resurrection. How did the Corinthians ever come to this place of denying the resurrection? And I came across this quote, and it, and it helped me to put this thing into perspective in, in the context of the Corinthian church. This writer says, some of the Corinthians wanted to reject the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead because they wanted to deceive themselves into thinking they could be spiritual by entering into our Lord's future blessings, by identifying with the glories of our Lord now. So in other words, everything that Jesus is experiencing now in heaven, we, if we were really spiritual, would be experiencing them now ourselves. Rather than his sufferings now, they did not want to identify with his weakness and dishonor, but with his power and glory. It's not a happy message saying place your faith in Jesus and he's going to make you rich. He's going to make you wise. He's going to make you healthy. He's going to give you the life of your dreams. That's what everybody wants. But to say this is a time to identify with his weakness and with his dishonor. Who wants that? To reject a future resurrection with a spiritual and glorified body was in the minds of some... To open the door to a spiritual existence now which permitted bodily indulgences and which assured them of peace and prosperity, health and wealth now, without having to endure the sufferings and shame of our Lord in this life. For those who wish to avoid pain and suffering and shame for Christ's sake and to label self-indulgence as spirituality, the rejection of the resurrection of the dead, was a great pretext. But Paul has shown it up for what it is, a denial of the gospel by which we are saved and by which we live. can remember this whole chapter started out with, I delivered to you what I have received of first importance, that Christ Jesus died for our sins, was buried, and rose again from the dead. And so to live as though the glories of the resurrection are ours now is to deny the gospel itself. Jesus has died for us that we might have life. And there is a glory where all of this will be put behind us. But it's not yet. And in the meantime, the power of his resurrection is for the sufferings of this world not in order to get us out of this world and to exempt us from this world, but to keep us steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord in the midst of suffering because he lives. Because he lives, we have hope for tomorrow. Because he lives, we have hope for today. In the midst of a Difficult world, we will always have hope because Christ lives and one day we will be with Him. I'll close us in prayer. Lord, I thank You that there is no academic truth in this book, it's all practical and immensely relevant. And that Christ rose from the dead and that we too will be raised is also absolutely relevant for how we live this life. And I pray that we would be those, God, who live in light of eternity and that we are willing to not count our lives dear to ourselves. To have Jesus first preeminent as our first thought, our best thought throughout every day, that every decision, every value would be subject to the reality of Christ's resurrection and that we will stand before him in glory, that we would live God with the ambition that he would be pleased and honored, that Jesus would be seen in us as we suffer according to your strength and your glory, your power, while we are yet weak. We thank you that your grace is sufficient for us in weakness, for your power is perfected in weakness. Thank you, God, for your grace. Thank you for your goodness, for giving us hope, and that hope is Jesus himself. In Christ's name, amen.